Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. It's almost impossible to convey the kind of intellectual celebrity that surrounded Joseph Campbell, uh, a professor of, well, mythology, folklore, legend, there are more formal names for this, in the late 70s and early 80s. And his particular message was about something called the monomyth, the idea that the stories told for thousands of years and across cultures about heroes were almost always the same, or at least relied heavily on a group of about 12 elements. And the other thing that he basically said was that these heroes were always men. And that's where, in fact, some of the conversation we're going to have today is going to jump off of Campbell's ship, because obviously women can do all this stuff too. More about that after the news. Yeah, so, I don't know, we could have picked a lot of songs to open the show today, but Joel Sobule's evocation of the hazards of conventional hero worship seems kind of right on the mark here as we explore the monomyth uh, and ways in which it maybe needs to be and has been transmuted, taken out of its very, very male-centric versions. So, we have a lot of ground to cover. We don't have a lot of time, but let me just quickly tell this story. So... I'm in college. It's like 1973. I'm in college. And part of my hero's journey is the idea that I should go hitchhiking and have adventures. Um, and it was in all the music at the time and everything, too. So I'm out hitchhiking. And it's actually pretty terrible. But I'm on Cape Cod. And I get picked up by three people my age who are from Westport, Connecticut. Uh, and we hit it off okay in the car. And they take me to where they're camping. They're camping out in the woods. I mean, they're camping on an unauthorized basis. The Cape wasn't as densely populated at the time. They'd found some, a place nobody was looking by a really nice freshwater pond. And so we went up staying up late and talking and drinking wine. And we went up talking, this is 1973, about Joseph Campbell. <laughs> so that's that's how pervade, we Bill Moyers and the, his Power of the Myth series, that was like 10 years away, I think. But even then, even in 1973, you could get pitched up, picked up hitchhiking and wind up talking about Joseph Campbell. That is how powerful this particular scholar uh, and his interpretation of myth uh, and his evocation of the monomyth had become at this point. So um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to people who know way more about this stuff than I do uh, and have obtained that knowledge from more legitimate sources than hitchhiking. Uh, Maria Tatar uh, is professor of folklore and mythology at Harvard University. Her new book is kind of the reason for doing 
doing this episode. It's the heroine with 1,001 Faces, uh, obviously a little bit of a play on Campbell's A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Jeff Garvin is an award-winning author of books, including The Symptoms of Being Human, and co-host of the Hero's Journey podcast. I'm pretty sure he's the one who doesn't do Schwarzenegger, but we'll find out uh, in a minute or two. But um, Maria, I'm wondering if you could sort of get us going here for people who maybe missed all that Joseph Campbell, uh, Bill Moyers stuff. Um, what is it that we're talking about again? What is this monomyth? Well, the monomyth, well, first, thank you for inviting me. And I loved hearing about your own adventure, uh, your own journey, and uh, into the woods. Uh, so it's really perfect. Uh, the monomyth. So Campbell is writing a book in 1949. Take yourself back there and remember that what is happening? Soldiers are coming back from World War II. So there's a reason, I think, for his glorification of the warrior hero, that type. Now, Campbell himself, I believe that uh, this was a male-centric story and that, you know, when one of his students said, but I want to be the hero, what was his response? You get to be the mother of the hero. You give birth to the hero. So what I'm trying to do with my book, actually, basically, is to turn from the monomath, um, and maybe we can talk about some of the steps in that journey to a kind of polymythical imagination, multiple possibilities for heroism. Right. I'm going to quickly speed through the, through the 12 steps. We can certainly play around with any one of them. It's ordinary world, the call to adventure, from that ordinary world to the call, of, call to adventure, a refusal of the call. I'm not going to do that. Uh, meeting with the mentor, that's Obi-Wan, maybe. Uh, crossing the threshold, test, allies and enemies. The approach, the, the ordeal, reward slash rebirth, road back, resurrection, return with the elixir. I mean, other theorists, as you point out, had, had already explored, the, explored this. Uh, Otto Rank, the, the disciple of Freud, talked about the baffling similarities uh, in, in a lot of these uh, sort of epic stories. Uh, but... I think the other part of this, and maybe let's pull Jeff in here for a second. If what we're talking about, uh, Jeff Garvin, starts to seem familiar to people based on their own television watching, movie going, novel reading, in particular in the case of movie going, there's a particular reason for that, right? Because a number of people were influenced uh, by uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, and we'll talk about George Lucas in just a second. But I think it might be interesting just to just jump right in here right now and talk about uh, the man who sort of spread this idea in a very determined way through Hollywood. So tell us about him. Hey, Colin. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. And Maria, it's awesome to meet you. I've been reading your book, and uh, it's really a pleasure to be part of this conversation. So I think the man you're referencing is a man named Christopher Vogler, Indeed. who was was working in the Disney story department in the late 80s, early 90s. And he read Campbell's book. He was so inspired uh, by the hero's journey that he he did his best. He distilled the ideas as he saw them into a, into a short memo, which he distributed through the Disney story department. Uh, and it, it blew up at the Disney story department. And this was the golden age of, you know, the Lion King, the little mermaid, beauty and the beast, Aladdin. Um, and so that, that, that memo had ripples and, and they just kept rippling out. It was a big rock dropped into a small stream and he, facing pressure from his colleagues in the industry, turned that into a book 
uh, which he titled The Writer's Journey, um, which was, it sort of served two purposes. One, it was his way of of revealing this this mystery that he felt had been solved by Joseph Campbell and sort of translating uh, the 1949 ideas, uh, which were, uh, as I think Mar- Maria mentioned, v- very, very uh, captured in that time of 1949. I mean, Joseph Campbell was a scholar and a brilliant man, but he was a man of his age. And uh, the context of what he wrote in the, you know, with Carl Jung and, and Sigmund Freud, there was, his ideas were very, very thick. To read that book was thick. And I think Vogler's idea was, let me make this uh, easier to grasp uh, for the average storyteller who's not a scholar. And so he wrote The Writer's Journey, and that influenced you know generations of filmmakers, storytellers, film students, novelists, you name it. Right. So, Maria, meanwhile, there's already um, uh, um, a kind of umbilicus of influence is kind of sloshing back and forth between Joseph Campbell and George Lucas. In the case of the Bill Moyer special, part of it, I think, was shot at the Skywalker Ranch. So, um, Kat, this is A1. Let's hear a little bit uh, of Joseph Campbell reflecting on Star Wars. Does a movie like Star Wars fill some of that need for the spiritual adventure for the hero? Oh, it's perfect. It does the, the cycle perfectly. It's not simple morality play. It has to do with the powers of life and their inflection through the action of man. But there's that word man again, Maria. <laughs> um, there's a way in which even though he's watching Star Wars and even though Lucas you know, is telling a pretty male story there at the beginning, although he's kind of introduced Leia, uh, you know, as a fellow Jedi uh, sister to Luke. It's just sort of interesting how this is still a way for a man to understand his life rather than for people to understand their lives. Well, yes, but one of the things that Campbell said, which is just so profound, is that the secret source of all of our suffering is mortality. So what he's done is to capture a kind of pattern in which you have, and I'm going to reduce the steps to the 12 steps to three, you have the call to adventure, and then you have an ordeal, which is always an encounter with death, uh, sometimes a symbolic death, sometimes a real death and resurrection, and then a return with an elixir. Uh, and an elixir can take many different forms. It's sort of a reward, but often as something that is beneficial for the social world, uh, not just for the hero. It's something that will heal wounds and make the world uh, a better place. So there's something truly universal about the structure. And, you know, you can find it if you want to keep up with the Kardashians, they'll start talking about the journey that they're taking. And in fact, you know, they go through a lot of ordeals and they do get a reward as well. So uh, there, there's a wonderful way in which it is universal. And I think that the template helps us not so much to be creative and write new stories as to understand the stories that are out there. Yeah, I just want to say, uh, apropos of the Kardashians, that this book is terrific in the way that it starts in antiquity uh, and and just takes us through all kinds of different versions of these stories, from the uh, the Grimm's fairy tale versions of these stories to 
everything from uh, Nancy Drew, uh, which was a fascinating uh, little sidebar there, uh, and uh, Elizabeth Salander. I hadn't really thought of her in this context, the the, the Stieg Larsson novels. So it's, it's really just sort of a wonderful piece of scholarship merged with a pretty candy look at, at popular culture. Um, but, you know, then the question becomes – well, actually, before we get to that question, uh, let's go back over to Jeff. Um, so there's a way in which, yes, um, you know, the way that Maria just distilled this is really a perfect way to think about it. Uh, and when you think about it that way, um, one of the points that I, I know you've made on the podcast, one of the things that you've looked at on the podcast is, of all things, Hamilton. In the eye of a hurricane, there is quiet for just a moment. A yellow sky When I was 17 A hurricane Destroyed my town I didn't drown I couldn't seem to die I wrote my way out Wrote everything down Far as I could see I wrote my way out I looked up And the town had its eyes on me they passed a plate around in total strangers Moved to kindness by my story Raised enough for me to book passage on a ship that was New York bound I wrote my way out of hell I wrote my way to revolution I was louder than the crack in the bell I wrote Eliza love letters until she So, Jeff... A line like, I wrote my way out of hell, is sort of, you know, could be ripped from the pages of Maria's book, too. <laughs> that that notion, but well, what's the elixir? Maybe for Hamilton, it's his brain, it's his writing, it's his ability uh, to, to take a bunch of gifts that weren't even really exploitable in his Caribbean homeland mm. uh, and, and do something amazing with them. Yeah, I mean, that, that song is such a great recap for the audience of the show of the destruction that became Hamilton's call to adventure when that hurricane tore through his town, disrupting his ordinary world and dragging him, kicking and screaming almost, uh, though he wanted to uh, enter this adventure. Uh, and the town raised the money and sent him to New York to, as he says, in New York, you can be a new man. Um, <laughs> Hamilton Hamilton is a, is a hero who's incredibly complex, right? He is... He is a deeply, deeply flawed, deeply brilliant man. And for him, I think the elixir is legacy. And he can't achieve that legacy until he gets forgiveness. And the forgiveness, of course, has to come from Eliza. And uh, I want to see the Eliza version of this show because talk about a hero. And, you know, um, in, in on the podcast, we look at a different book or film each month and you know, the hero's journey gets gets cast as a formula or a framework so much. And it's hard not to think of it that way. But like Maria said, it becomes a way to understand stories. And it to me, it's always a discovery process as I'm trying to analyze and find those elements as I'm watching a movie or or reading a book. And I and I've also discovered that as a writer, that tool of those stages is completely unattainable. It, it's, I can't get my hands on it during a first draft. I can only use it to go back and understand what I wrote 
or identify what's missing. And so I, I really encourage uh, those who are interested in reading this book or Maria's or Vogel's book or listening to my podcast, it's really discovering flavors. Like like if you read the bottle of a wine, the, the bottle, the label on a bottle of wine, it tells you, oh, you know, hints of cocoa and shoe leather and you know, red grapes, and then you taste it, and you can you can feel all those flavors in your mouth. It's to me, that's really what it's about is enriching the experience that you're having inside a story. Um, yeah, and so there's so many places to go from there. But so, Maria, that kind of mm-hmm. takes us back to the question of okay, so how are stories told differently, and are they told differently based on whether their uh, their protagonists are, are men or or women? And so, one of the things that Jeff is suggesting, which I, I love the idea of, well, let's hear Eliza's version of Hamilton. I mean, that's a technique, right? I mean, Madeline Miller does it in Circe. Let's tell this story from the perspective of you know, or, or as you point out, there have been a number of attempts to elicit Penelope's perspective on the Odyssey uh, a little bit more vividly. So that's one option, right? Let's see how this looks from the point of view of a woman who maybe isn't the protagonist in the original telling. Maybe you can comment on that a little bit. Gosh, there's so many things going off in my head uh, (laughs) as you speak. Uh, Extraordinary. But, you know, at the beginning of of Hamilton, uh, moved by my story, he tells us uh, that his uh, neighbors and friends were moved by his story. And then we go to the ending where the elixir, the healing potion, is story, is telling your story. That is our salvation, that you will be remembered, that people will honor your memory and what what you, what you did. Uh, and then the extraordinary fact that you can take history, uh, and history, our histories are all stories, they're collections. You know, it's not just facts, it's not just dry facts, but someone has taken the events, turned them, spun them, woven them into a story. And then what you mentioned, uh, that all-important question of perspective. We see things very differently when we think about, uh, well, what Penelope experiences in, in the Odyssey. If we read Margaret Atwood's Penelope Ad, we get a completely different story. Uh, so in it, if I can go back to Hamilton for a second, isn't it Burr who is telling his story initially? And then we have Eliza coming in, and we discover that she too has a story. And Jeff is exactly right. I can't wait to see the musical Eliza. I, 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 want, I want that to happen sooner rather than later. But, you know, it does feel, Maria, as though when you do the perspective shift, the problem is, at least with the stories that come out of antiquity or even fairy tales, they're still rooted in a pretty patriarchal narrative. I mean, <clears throat> Miller's book's novel, Circe, is terrific, but it's, it's it's about Circe growing up in a world dominated by men in which decisions are made by men, in which women you know, usually by either subterfuge or outthinking them or noticing something that nobody else has noticed, you can maybe kind of find an opening. Uh, but you also might be punished very strongly for doing that. With Penelope, I mean, there's no way to tell the story of the weaving and the unweaving and, and all the things that, that she has to do to kind of get through this and have it be, I guess what I'm really saying, with, with men, it's often about military valor. If you shift the perspective to women because of the way the first story was set up, it can't be that, right? Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, myth and fairy tales, too, are all about action, deeds. Um, and suddenly we have 
you know, a generation of writers, women writers, who are retelling the myths and the fables and the fairy tales, but with interiority. It's not about action and deeds. Suddenly we're inside the minds of characters in ways that we never were in the stories that were passed down to us. So uh, we get inside the skit, we get inside the heads of these characters. We see things in a completely different way. And the events are processed in ways that, that really make us, you know, rethink what happened. Uh, not just the thoughts of characters, but also the actions and deeds of the men who have been the dominant players. So, uh, you know, uh, I wanted Jeff talk a little bit about, and we have to speed date through just a lot of stuff here, but um, you, how this manifests itself or how it gets begins to get told differently in modernity. And I want to ask you, because I know you've dealt with this in the podcast because I listened to the episode, I, I would make the argument that if you combine Terminator 1 and 2, you have a pretty amazing hero's journey about a woman that Sarah Connor, you know, she's sort of everything. And at the beginning, she's like living in the ordinary world with her 80s hair, going to, you know, clubs and stuff. And and then she gets called into action. She she has to do some mama bear stuff later on, you know, but she also on her own basis in Terminator 2, we see her and she's all jacked, you know, and she's smoking and she's badass. And there's to me, to me, that's like this really, to me, a very effective telling of a hero's narrative about a woman. Yeah, she gets a little crazy, uh, but who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, Sarah Connor is an incredible heroine. She, she, you know, she does. She's not just out to save her son, right? She overcomes that, and she's out to save the world. And that that's a that's a profound uh, task to take on. And of course. She's fighting these impossible machines, you know, the, the the superhuman machines. And it's, of course, a man who has invented these machines who look like men who are coming to kill her son. So, I mean, the, the, for, I'm so glad you brought up Terminator because, yeah, when 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 Linda Hamilton did that role, you know, she was determined that her character, that Sarah Connor be strong and aggressive. And, you know, women are often painted as crazy when they're the only ones speaking the truth. It happens in the, a, mo a more recent film, Don't Look Up. You know, Jennifer Lawrence's character is really the one ringing the bell about this comment, and she becomes the laughingstock. When she's really, she's not crazy. She's reacting appropriately to an insane situation. Um, but, but to talk about female heroes uh, in modernity, I would bring it back to Margaret Atwood and talk about of Fred, or as she's called in the show, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, June. This is a different kind of heroine. She does she does she exhibit you know traditionally masculine traits like Sarah Connor, strength, aggression, violence? Yes, but mostly she's subverting. She's manipulating. She's she's it, it, kind of like in jujitsu. She's taking the force and redirecting it to her advantage. And I think you know we, we did the we did the the Handmaid's Tale a couple of years ago on the podcast. Incredibly challenging. Because of Fred does have a hero's journey, but it's not like anything you see in a, uh, a traditionally masculine uh, situation. You know, the, the, the makers of Terminator 1 and 2 were primarily men. Margaret Atwood, and um, she's, she's the creator of that show. And um, Elizabeth Moss, who's a producer 
on that show has her own distinct experiences and the way they form the the arc of that hero's character it for sure it goes through the cycle of the hero's turn you can identify all the elements but the actions that she takes as a heroine are very different than the kinds of actions a character like sarah connor would take and but i think it's great that modern storytelling has room for both. Right. And so, um, Maria, we've got to go back to one thing that Jeff said uh, about the Terminator movies and Sarah Connor. She's the only one who knows what ha- what's really happening and nobody's listening. That's a very old archetype. I mean, we're back with Cassandra at minimum, right? Cassandra, absolutely. And uh, I mean, what an allegory of uh, how women have been treated. Cassandra speaks the truth. No one believes her. She predicts the Trojan War. Uh, no one, she has no credibility whatsoever. And by the way, she has a backstory, which is that Apollo courted her and uh, she uh, rejected his advances. What does he do? He spits into her, her mouth and curses her with lack of credibility, of always have, having the gift of prophecy but not being believed. So there's a story where we we have only a fragment of the story, or at least, you know, we all grow up learning about Cassandra, but very few of us know about how she was cursed uh, with a lack of of credibility. And it is a story about how women have been silenced um, and continue to be silenced because Words are their weapons. Words and stories have traditionally been their weapons. So if you shut that down, if you cut out their tongues, as happens in some myths, uh, they lose the ability to tell the story. And in some cases, they have to resort to visual means, weave tapestries, uh, and use other ways of getting getting the truth out, speaking truth to power. Right. A lot of weaving going on. All right. So we have to take a break here. But yeah, Cassandra, actually Don Winslow, who's uh, writing who's writing a three, a modern three novel arc based on the uh, Iliad, Odyssey, and Aeneid, actually has a character named Cassandra who sees everything coming. Nobody listens. Let's take a little break here. We'll come back. Thanks to Jeff Garvin. Check out The Hero's Journey, the podcast. Um, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. We are back. We are talking uh, still. We, uh, we're talking still to um, Maria Tatar. Uh, her book, The Heroine with 1001 Faces, is just a terrific journey from, as I say, this tales of antiquity to the most modern stuff uh, you can imagine. It's all kind of there. You know, um, Maria, in antiquity, in, well, let's go to the Greco Roman tradition for a second. Um, you know, there, there are these groups of women, but they're sort of like public utility companies. I mean, they just sort of do the same thing over and over again. I'm thinking the fates, the furies, the muses, the graces. They can't really have narrative stories, right? Because they're just sort of there to deliver one set of things. You really have to hunt a little bit more to find the women who have actual names and stories. Oh, yes. And uh, you've just pointed out that all of these figures of retribution, revenge, are embodied as women, the Furies, the Arrhenes. Uh And also, by the same token, we all our statues, our public statues of justice, are what? Women. Mm-hmm. Women who are sometimes blindfolded, but not always, uh, with scale in one hand and a sword in the other hand. Uh, even as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, women really had only words words and stories as their weapons. They didn't have uh, the sword. Right. I mean, think of Scheherazade just telling stories to stay alive, basically. Um, and, and so, yeah, in a way, the women also are, I mean, you can only have battles for so long, the Iliad notwithstanding. You can only be at war for, and then you got to put down your sword and do something else. And it's kind of women, women are often seen in the role of kind of either picking up the pieces or creating some kind of social mission that somehow or other transcends war. There's a way in which, and it's probably familiar to all of us, throughout our own lives, too. Women are expected to fix up all the stuff that gets broken uh, in war. Well, that's right. But uh, they're also driven to do that on their own. Uh, You mentioned Scheherazade. Uh, She tells stories. She tells these cliffhangers uh, to save her neck because uh, Shariar, the king, is going to execute her the following day. But she tells such great stories that he delays her execution. So she does that to save her own neck, but she also does it to save the lives of other women. And eventually, I mean, the beauty of that collection is at the end of the Thousand and One Nights, we learn that uh, Shariar has become a better ruler. He's stopped his bloodthirsty ways. So what Shiharazad has done is to change her culture through the practice of storytelling. Extraordinary. Yeah. This book, by the way, you just have a wonderful eye for seeing similarities and themes and ones that a lot of people would miss. And we don't have time to to go into your explanation of how Jurassic Park is at least partly a retelling of Hansel and Gretel, but it's terrific. People need to read the book to, to see some things like this. But one point that you make, which I think is important, and it might be what we have to end on because we're talking to Lev Grossman in the final segment, but um, – You have a paragraph where you say, do we risk installing a disturbing new archetype of female heroism, one that emulates the muscle and agility of classical male heroes? Uh, When we look at Hollywood's refashioning of uh, fairy tales and uh, fairy tale heroines in film, um, the slide from one extreme to the other becomes evident. And I think that's kind of all over the place. And I I wonder what I mean, my problem with Thelma and Louise a little bit was 
they just turned into the kind of jerky guys that they had been dealing with, you know, kind of female equivalents of these kind of jerky, violent men. And, and as you watch this now, and if you people who follow comic book movies know that Captain Marvel is now a man, Hawkeye is gonna, now going to be Hilly Steinfeld, you know, and I sort of wonder about that, just turning the classic style of a somewhat violence-based hero into a woman. What are your thoughts oh, about yeah. that? Yeah, well, and mimicking the male model. You know, if we look back, we see that heroism is gendered, very strictly gendered male and female. The great thing today, and this is what gives me hope, is that there are many different possibilities out there. So that women are sometimes warrior women. Uh, they have Game of Thrones and the whole spectrum we, we have mm -hmm. there, uh, or Hunger Games, or Wonder Woman, Black Widow, uh, Black Panther. Uh, you know, I could go on and on. We have these tough women. But then we have someone like, you know, Mildred Hayes and Three Billboards who is tough, uh, but also shrewd. She uses the craft that women have relied on over the centuries. What does she do? She writes on billboards. Uh, she puts words onto billboards uh, that draw attention to what happened to her, her daughter. So again, you know, this idea, you know, Caring and using craft are such important features of the female heroine, but that those features are can be adopted by men now too, that is men. And I think we see this in films and in real life as well, where men are looking at, you know, and not consciously, I think, but looking at the models of female heroism from the past and adopting them and discovering We'd look at the way that, you know, medals are now awarded not because you destroyed a village, but because you saved uh, other soldiers or you saved others. So I think the culture is, is moving in the direction of, a, of that female model from times, times past, but still leaving open the possibility for many different forms of heroism. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting, we have to close here, but the way that we read stories then turns in, to, at least partly, to the way that we kind of um, understand and process life, uh, the way we decode life. We understand the things that we see in the real world, at least partly because of the stories that we've been told. So, uh, all right, we have to stop. Uh, Maria, it's been great. The book is The Heroine with 1001 Faces. The author is Maria Tatar. We've been very fortunate to have her. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Our old friend Lev Grossman, the novelist, is going to talk to us about how all this stuff plays out in his work.
Before we begin this final segment, uh, some special thanks go to Cat Pastor, as always, our technical producer, and then special service provided by the great one, uh, the great one, Gina Matruda, uh, also helping us out with the technology here. Uh, and uh, Lily Tyson, who is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this episode. And we are bringing back uh, somebody that we talked to a lot many years ago, and I don't know how we fell out of touch. It's just the way those things happen. Uh, but he's a wonderful writer with a tremendous grasp of the kind of narrative, that kind of just ancient template that we've been talking about for the whole show today. Lev Grossman is joining us, an author best known for his Magicians trilogy. His newest book, which I don't know anything about, I'm embarrassed to say, is The Golden Swift. So, Lev, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Con. It's good to be back. So, you know, maybe just begin with this idea that when you first decided to write the magician's books, I mean, it was just clear to anyone reading them that you were probably pretty steeped in this tradition, that uh, you'd been reading it and loving it probably for most of your life. But could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, I'm assuming there are just things that you read, things that you soaked in that you thought I want to try my own version of that. I, I, I want to see what I can bring to that. Well, that's exactly what, what, it, what it felt like to me. You know, the fantasy tradition, uh, which we all know so well from The Lord of the Rings and, and Harry Potter and uh, Narnia and things like that, I mean, that really is where the hero's journey, it shows up everywhere, but that's where it lives in our culture. That's where those mythological stories really thrive right now. And they do thrive. They're so dominant and prevalent in our culture. And when I started to set out to write in that tradition, I put a lot of thought into this question, do I want to go along with this template, which is handed to everybody? Or do I try to find a new path? And the answer, I think, as it does for a lot of writers, turned out to be yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, and I would also assume that no matter how much you might have intentionally wanted to diverge uh, from that path, there are ways in which, you know, it's so well trod and there's a reason it's universal, right? I mean, the notion of, for example, reluctance or the refusal of a call. I think it's very hard to write a story like this without some element of that. The story of the hero's journey, it wants to be told. As you write a story, you can feel it pressing at you saying yes yes <laughs> you know how this goes uh, i'm going to give you the i'm going to give you the answer you know you don't have to guess this is this is what happens next it, it it's constantly it's 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 nipping at your heels and you think to yourself do i want to give into this because it is so familiar because it creates drama and feeling so powerfully and so readily uh, or should i resist it is this a voice uh, the voice of the patriarchy or some other suspicious voice that I should be pushing back at. And sometimes it's it's sometimes you don't quite know. Well, I think one thing about it's been a while since I read the magician's books, but I remember them well enough to think I think I was thinking at the time, well, Lev is sort of he's kind of Scorseseing or actually really almost sopranoing uh, that that fantasy hero's narrative tradition in the sense that, you know, in The Sopranos, it turns out those guys, they've watched all the movies and they 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 know what on on screen mafia people are supposed to be like and their, their own self-images are constantly being held up against those things. Your characters, because they are modern people. And they don't kind of exist in the sort of Harry Potter kind of vacuum. They're very conscious of what kind of tradition they're in. I mean, that's one of the things that one of the ways in which I, I think you did begin to break some new ground. What if these people already know these kinds of stories, right? 
Well, it's a, it's a fascinating question because, of course, we all know these stories. And so on the one hand, we feel as though this is the way our life story is developing because this is who we are. We are the hero of our own lives and we go out in the world and this is how this is the fate that has befallen us. And, and then at the same time, um, you realize, wait, we've been given this script and told it many times and we're just a puppet acting out the story that has been drummed into us. It's a very funny question. It always bothered me that Harry Potter had pretended that he had never read Narnia. Of course he's read Narnia. What else would he be doing in that little room under the stairs for 11 years? Um, and I wanted to play with that in The Magicians because um, the characters there are self-aware in the way that, that real people now are, are self-aware. And sometimes just to be idiots, they'll go the other way because they'll do the thing that they weren't told how to do. And other times, you know, when when Harry gets confused or lost, someone tends to show up to, to tell him, to give him some good advice, usually as Dumbledore or Hagrid or some other avuncular figure. But of course, Harry is unbelievably privileged in that way. He puts it on like he, you know, he he's an orphan, he's lost, he's been abused, um, he's had such a terrible time of it. And yet, at the same time, whenever he, when he steps out his front door and goes to Diagon Alley, he's the most famous person in the world. Mm -hmm. So on one level, you know, he's a he's a hero. He's undergoing uh, overcoming great adversity. On the other hand, he's suffering, obviously suffering from crippling narcissistic personality disorder because everybody pays attention to him all the time. So, you know, this is this this is funny disjunction. When I read The Magicians, and I think a lot of people do this, they played with correcting for reality. It has been my experience that it's very rare for somebody to show up at my elbow with good advice uh, when I need it. Um, so the characters and the magicians, they're very lost and they wander around, they wander off the path all the time. Their lives are so chaotic and disorganized because that, however much I wanted my life to resemble a hero's journey, um, that was more my experience. And of course, art is beholden on the one hand to these great mythic structures, and on the other hand, it's beholden to the, the reality of lived experience. And um, when you're telling a story, you kind of have to chart that middle path. Right. I just want to go back to Harry Potter for a second because as you, I've had the same thought that you've had, you know, that he's, first of all, incredibly independently wealthy uh, and he has these special powers and everybody knows who he is and he's very legendary. Uh, and yet he's supposedly this kind of put upon Charlie Brown like figure in some other way. And the only thing that I can say to kind of excuse all of that is that J.K. Rowling had a much closer view of Prince Charles than you and I do. And, you know, <laughs> Prince Charles is sort of in that category. He's incredibly rich. He can kind of do whatever he wants to do and he just seems miserable all the time. So maybe that's sort of a British thing. But yeah, your characters, I think, correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, but I think in a lot of the conventional classical narratives, it's kind of like the hero is allowed one fatal mistake. You know, like Achilles does a lot of dumb stuff, but, you know, basically it's all kind of permitted. It all kind of exists within the, the context of his incredible puissance, you know. But your characters get to make a lot of mistakes. And I think, once again, because they're kind of modern characters, they drink too much, they ingest other substances that are not good for them, they have sex with the right people, the wrong people, they don't have sex with people they want to have sex with. I mean, they're very recognizable to us. And I'm thinking maybe that's an area where, you know, like Luke Skywalker doesn't screw up that way, really, that I can think of, you know? It's true. And, you know, he, in, he enjoys lots, lots of kinds of privilege that many people don't. And at the same time, I, I want to, I, I have to admit that 
there are so many reasons why this hero's journey story endures. And when you find yourself approaching the end of your novel and you are desperately hoping that you're going to write something that is satisfying, well, the hero's journey, it comes back to you. And uh, it's difficult, unless you're Samuel Beckett writing Waiting for Godot, <laughs> it's difficult to entirely transcend it and get past it and still deliver something that people recognize as satisfying, as recognized as closure. So, you know, as, as much as, as, as many times as the hero's journey has been shot, uh, I, there are deep reasons why it doesn't fall down. Right. I think another thing that you do is, and you're not the first person to do it, and I mean, arguably Rowling does it with at least her, her trio uh, of heroes, is you have a little bit more of an ensemble approach. So you have a whole bunch of different people with different even reactions to the proposed bargain of the hero's journey. Not everybody sees it the same way. And then there are people who think they ought to be heroes and they don't get called. <laughs> I mean, so, so there's one of the things that you do by having a kind of larger cast is you have a bunch of different people who might run through that whole process with a whole different set of suppositions and results. Something I long to do as, as a storyteller is, is somehow acknowledge the fact that although uh, you, if one's narrative may be focused on a single person, but everybody feels that they are the hero of their own story. Everybody's living their own hero's journey. And even the villain is. Villains never think that they're the villains. They always think they're the heroes and they're overcoming enormous adversity. This oppressive fellow, Luke Skywalker, who was always shooting lasers at me or whatever. You know, if only I could get past him, then, you know, finally the hero would, 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 would triumph. Everybody feels they're living that story. And, it, the, you know, the hero's journey, it's so hermetic in that only one person can be the hero. And it's not like the world, thank goodness, because, it, because, because everybody's living the hero's journey at the same time. And it's so important to try to let that multiplicity, you know, get into get into what you're writing. Otherwise, it just becomes this meaningless power fantasy. Yeah. And I think also one of the things that is harder and harder to do, probably had became harder and harder to do somewhere near the beginning of the 20th century, when in fact, kind of the, you know, the triumph of the therapeutic, the kind of Freudian notion of self-examination uh, became more and more important and began to eclipse certain kinds of belief systems, is it's hard to write a hero who exists only within a belief system, who, who exists within a mythology that's already valorized him or her and identified his or her purpose and all that. Because we don't live that way anymore. We're always asking ourselves questions. When I was a very, pretty young boy, I bought my first two or three Spider-Man comics, and there was uh, an episode, this is very early on, Steve Ditko was still drawing it, and where Spider-Man was wondering why in the world was he doing this? And he actually swung through the window of a psychiatrist's office and then kind of unobligingly, you know, webbed him up, tied him up in his chair with webbing, and then demanded to know why he was doing this from the psychiatrist, which was, you know, simultaneously a very funny scene, but a modern scene too. But to me, that's one of the differences between you writing now and somebody writing you know, centuries ago uh, is that you can't really write a non-reflective, non-questioning hero anymore. Um, yeah, thank goodness. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's progress. And, you know, there are other stories, so many stories that are about different kinds of power. I mean, the hero's journey is about amassing power. 
It, there's something deeply authoritarian about it. It's about going and getting the power and then coming home and then you've got it. There are, there are other kinds of power. And then there are stories that end with disempowerment, probably more than the other kind. I feel like people are wonderfully resourceful in undercutting the hero's journey uh, <laughs> in literature right now. And we have to keep at it, even knowing that its phantom will, will always be with us. Yeah. I, I wonder if another thing that changed it was, in fact, sort of the the end of World War II and the notion when the atomic bomb was deployed that you can have too much power. You can have way too much power. And I think that gets us, you know, pretty quickly into some of the more modern fantasy things, you know. Can, and, and, and for some of your characters, too, they're asking, can I really wield this power uh, effectively or am I going to make a mistake because I have too much of it? And to me, I think that's also a pretty modern set of heroic questions. Definitely. And, and of course, the American intervention in, in Vietnam, for example, we were so accustomed to this idea that we were the good ones uh, wielding power on, on behalf of the right. And we very sharply discovered that the, the world is much more complicated than that. And I think the hero's journey was probably the never, never the same again. So I guess sort of last question, and you alluded to this at the beginning, that there's something a little bit inherently corruptive about like the original Joseph Campbell hero's narrative and Campbell himself famously didn't even think there was any woman's version of it and that kind of thing. But I feel as though you writing in a more modern voice, you know, you cover a lot of bases. I mean, there are there are male protagonists and there are female, you know, major characters and stuff like that. I mean, do you sort of feel as though you've begun to solve that problem so that Madeline Miller doesn't have to write a, a novel from the kind of unsung perspective of one of the magician's characters? Um, I, I wish I could say yes to that, to, <laughs> to that question. Um, I mean, I don't. It, it's it's not going to be a writer like me who is a straight white guy who's middle class who's going to who's going to solve these problems. Um, I, I guess what I will say is that you know a lot about writing the magicians for me was about uh, it was about recovering from depression. It was recovering from a mental health problem where myself became deeply disorganized and uh, lacking in any, any, in any power of religion. And I had to go through this process of dragging myself together and, and putting myself back together, um, and finding a way to get out of bed and get out the door, finding that kind of power. And when I look at the hero's journey, when I, when I, when I think about it, I still recognize that very much. And in a way that was very healthy for me, uh, I needed to find a way to become the hero of my own life and to feel as though I had some power to to make changes in the world. Um, for a long time, I didn't. And I found a way. And the hero's journey really helped me. Right. Love the David Copperfield reference. You have kind of Steerforth type characters as well at times. And I like them too. Lev Grossman, I'm so excited about the Golden Swift. I can't wait to get my mitts on it and read it. Lev Grossman, an author best known for his Magician's Trilogy. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and for helping Thank us you, end Paul. this show. Yeah.
day 